Thanks for joining us again here on the Calvary Tabernacle Young Adults Podcast, or as we like to call it, the CTYA Podcast. Uh, Today we have Brother Andrew Herbst back with us. He is continuing the series in John from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, and his title is Let Me Tell You Who Jesus Is. Praise the Lord, everyone. It is awesome to be here. We're going to turn to John chapter 5. Amen. Thank you, music team. That was awesome. The, the word Hosanna literally means save now. And so how many of you know that really only the, the highest can actually save us? Amen. And a uh, big thank you to Brother Lopez I really love being a part of young, young adults, and since I've moved here from Minnesota, I felt very welcome here, and I really am thankful for your leadership, sir, and of course to the oppor- uh, for the opportunity to speak, and also to Brother Kevin, who asked me to speak here, and then um, to Pastor Mooney, of course. How many of you love our pastor? I love Brother Mooney so very much. So we're just going to walk through chapter 5 here. We're just going to jump into it, and... Chapter 5 is the, in the book of John, that is, it's the beginning of the conflict between Jesus and the established religion, meaning the Pharisees and all the Jewish traditions and all that good stuff. So this is some escalating conflict, if we can say that. So really, as I was reading through this, Brother Lopez, the the song, I think it was uh, the Jackson Bible College, I think, did this song a long time ago uh, called Let Me Tell You Who Jesus Is. Am I right? Is that who's saying? I just want to make sure. So let me tell you who Jesus is. So as I was studying this, that song kept coming to my head. So that is my title, Brother Ross, Let Me Tell You Who Jesus Is. And let's start reading with verse 1 here. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Now Bethesda, they think, means house of mercy. And there's this scholar, he died, uh, I think, 1990, somewhere in that range, named F.F. Bruce. And F.F. Bruce is considered to be one of the greatest New Testament scholars of very, uh, for the last hundred years or so, very influential man. He says that the word, the name Bethesda is right. And the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that this was actually a place. Now, why he might bring that up is because depending on what translation you read, it's going to have a different name. There's a few other names that it, it, it's the, the pool of this and the pool of that. And F.F. Bruce even says you got to be careful which one you read because they're getting it confused with a city that was off of the Lake of Galilee called Bethsaida. But thankfully, the King James has rendered that the, the appropriate name here, Bethesda. And we know that Bethesda is actually a real place, right? So in the uh, late 1800s, they actually found this particular site, but they weren't really sure what it was. It took Brother Vince about 100 years for them to actually confirm that, okay, this is actually the pool of Bethesda. And there's a key point in here that John really pinpoints. He says, Bethesda having five porches. Now, this one verse, I got kind of excited when I was asked to do this particular scripture. For the, the reason for that is because this particular verse, critics of the Bible would look at that and they would say, Brother Chris, well, we haven't found Bethesda. So obviously the book of John is not reliable. We cannot trust John's reports because we have not found Bethesda. And then they found it. 
the problem is, is that they still say, well, even though we found it and it does have the five porches, it does have everything that John says about it is what the archaeology confirms, we still can't trust John's gospel. They still say that. So unfortunate. The problem is, is it, well, really, and, and they found both pools, the pool of Bethesda, and then if you go forward to chapter 9, the pool of Siloam, they found that one too, okay? So the issue here, uh, John Wart Montgomery, he's a very influential uh, Lutheran scholar, he would say this. He says, when you're talking about the inerrancy or the truth of the Bible, it's not a matter of fact and evidence because the Bible has proven itself over and over and over again. What it comes down to is philosophy or their mindset. You're never going to be able to argue with people with facts and data to the point of, of them just believing it out of nowhere because their heart has to be just a little bit open to it. And this is just, just a little bit of an apologetic that shows that, hey, Bethesda was real, John had it right, and we can actually trust his gospel. The one thing that they said was not accurate was actually accurate. So <clears throat> that's good stuff. So what is Bethesda? Bethesda was this massive area, and a couple of us have been there in, over there in Israel, right by Jerusalem, or in Jerusalem, excuse me, right near the Temple Mount. And there, there were these two massive pools of water, and they would kind of flow and channel into the smaller area where there was a bunch of little pools, and this is where all the sick people were, okay? So, excuse me, verse 3 talks about all the different types of sick people, and they would all congregate in that area. And verse 4 talks about how an angel would come down and kind of like stir up the water, maybe make some waves or something, and then whoever was the first one in the pool that person was healed of whatever disease or illness that they had. Again, a little bit of a, a, a defense of the King James here. <clears throat> there are some people that say, well, that verse was actually inserted a couple hundred years later. Verse 4 is not actually in the original. But when you actually do the research, you find that that claim is actually pretty unfounded. It, it should be there. So, uh, Verse 5, and a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. So by show of hands, how many of you have been sick for 38 years? I don't think anybody in here has been sick for 38 years. This, this man here was sick for longer than most people in the ancient world lived, okay? So Jesus, it's, it, there are some commentators that think he, he looked and he saw the person in the most hopeless condition. And he, he went, Jesus went to this man this is not, and I'm going to get to this in a little bit, but this is not a story, Brother Lopez, where the faith of the man draws Jesus to him. This is a hopeless situation that Jesus is drawn to, Brother Drew. This is, this is not the man getting up or, or whatever, limping around, saying, Jesus, I need you. You can do anything. This is him just laying there, and he's been there for years. He has been there for quite a long time. Long, we don't know how long he was there, but he was there long enough to have tried to get into the pool several times and failed. Verse 6, And when Jesus saw him lying there, lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be healed? Now, just off the bat, we might think, okay, Jesus, you are God, but that is kind of a weird question, Right? He's been, he's been sick for 38 years. This is, this is much longer than the lady with the issue of blood and those other circumstances that we read and preach about. 
But Jesus, okay, obviously he probably, like, he wants to be healed. He's probably, like, really tired of laying around this pool all day and all night for so many years, right? But really, it's not that obvious of an answer. Why? Because the cripple does not say yes. The cripple does not say, yes, I know that God can heal me. Yes, I know that I've been sick for a long time. He does not have this faith statement that makes Jesus just, oh man, I have not seen any faith like this. No, not in all of Israel. No, he actually said that about a Gentile, right? So this is not so much of an obvious answer as we might expect. The impotent man, verse 7, answered him, Sir, I have no man. When the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but when I am coming, another steppeth down before me. I have no man. In the Old Testament, you can read of several places where it says that God looked for a man and he could not find one. Now, this is in in the idea of salvation. God looked for a man to make up the hedge. God looked for a man to become that perfect man, that perfect uh, high priest, that go-between, but he couldn't find anyone. So what does Isaiah 59, 16, and 17 say? That God came himself to be that man. And this is exactly what is happening here. No man can solve this sick man's problem. So Jesus is going to do it. There's nobody that could help this man. He had no help. He had no one to support him. Everyone else had stepped out before him, and he's left all by himself. But again, he doesn't, he doesn't say, yes, I, I, I think God can heal me. Instead, I think his situation mirrors ours sometimes, Sister Stephanie, that Sometimes we get too used to our own misery. We've had this for so long. This is what my family's like. This is how I have been for years. This is what my church, this was my upbringing. This has been my problem for many years. Whatever the case might be, we can get so used to our misery that we are going to, well, of course, we, we might not say God can't do it, but why would God do it? Why would God answer our prayer? Why would God heal us? It's been this way for as long as I can remember, and we almost get, uh, we just get used to our misery. That's the term in my head. We just get comfortable in it, and we, we almost sometimes don't want it to leave. We no longer leave that room for God. So notice what he does. He doesn't respond in faith, but he leaves Jesus with an excuse. Okay, if everybody's in here like me, real, you've left excuses at the altar before. Instead of the preacher saying something, you know, like God can touch your life or, you know, God can answer that, that need or whatever it is. Instead of going and having faith, just a little bit of faith, we say, well, and we leave excuses. Again, it's always been this way. I've, this is the way my friends are. You, all of those types of situations are in our head instead of just a little bit of faith that we need. But Jesus does not focus on the excuse. Verse 8 says, And Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And I love this so much, that Jesus gives us the power to obey. Jesus gives us, to the, gives us the strength, of course, through the Spirit, to do things that we could not do before. Jesus is going to, God does not just command us something, and something impossible, and then just leave us there. But he is going to empower us, and he is going to deliver us, not leaving us down over here. I also love how he says to rise up and walk. 
the man talked about going down, stepping down into the pool, and Jesus is saying, rise up, get up, let's get out of here. Verse 9 says, and immediately, immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed, and walked, and then this little key part here, and on the same day was the Sabbath. Now, before I focus on that key ending phrase there, the faith of the person praying can make all the difference in the world. Okay, the person that you are praying for, whether you're working in the altar or whether you just go up during a song service or you're praying for someone at home, your faith can have a dramatic impact in heaven on this individual. Because again, this, this man... Was, was not His faith did not drive Jesus to him. His initial faith, the first part, of course, he has faith when he stands up and walks, right? But his initial faith, that first part, was not what Jesus looked at to heal this man. So I have to ask, is it biblical for us to have this idea? I don't have enough faith, so that's why God hasn't heard me. Or unfortunately, I have actually heard preachers tell people, you don't have enough faith. That's why God has not touched your need. Is that actually something biblical to say? Now, we do know of particular cities that because of their lack of faith, it says that Jesus could do no work there, right? We understand that faith is important. I am definitely not trying to say you don't need to have faith, okay? But the issue here is, how do we know what the will of God is? Number one, if you just don't have faith, you can limit what God wants to do in your life. But to say this, this little idea that I don't have enough faith, that is the reason why God has not touched me, is a very unbiblical idea. And we need to be very careful when we're trying to reason through situations and we're trying to, with our, our human capacity, trying to understand why is God not moving in this situation. Because you don't know why God is waiting. You don't know why if God is going to touch you tomorrow or you don't know if he's going to touch you in 38 years from now. You don't know the purpose and the will of God in this particular situation. So I, I want to encourage you today that instead of just saying, I don't have enough faith, because he said all you need is just a little bit of faith. All you need is just a little bit. So what should our mindset be? And this is why the song that Brother Pedigo sings so often really touches us is to keep believing Keep believing in what you know is true because you don't know when that answer is going to come. Amen. Verse 10. Brother Chris, could you read that? Number, verse 10 for us, please. So now we're going to come back to that main part, the Sabbath. <clears throat> okay, if we, if we obey Jesus... If we're reading our Bibles and we're, we're trying to obey what Christ is telling us and commanding us to do, we better be ready for some kickback. We better be ready to go against the spirit of the age. We better be ready to stand against the established religion. Because there's, there's a, a lot of traditions in this world that does not like Jesus very much. So we have to have enough confidence and boldness in what we believe to be able to answer these attacks on what we're trying to do in our obedience. I heard one conservative 
um, lecturer, and he said this, if you're afraid to be conservative, it's over. And I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to parody that, and I'm going to say, if you are afraid to be a Christian, it's over. If you're afraid to stand up and say, listen, God did heal me. God did touch my life. I went to a meeting one night, as pastor likes to say. My heart wasn't right, but God turned my life around. If we are afraid to testify of what God did for us, it's over. Verse 11, the man, again, makes another excuse. Well, this guy told me to do it, right? That guy told me to pick up my, my sleeping bag, right? And, and told, me to, told me to carry it. And then the Pharisees, the Jews, are saying, well, well, who did that? And the man doesn't know. Obviously, this guy really wasn't caught up on social media because Jesus was healing people everywhere, right? So he says, I don't know. And again, just another little thing to throw out there. Jesus is not looking for popularity. He healed the man. And then it says, once the crowd started coming, Jesus left. Philippians 2 says he made of himself no reputation. So when God uses you, whose kingdom are you building is a question to ask. Verse 14, so it's, it's a little bit later on, and the, the Pharisees are frustrated at this guy for carrying his mat. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple. Jesus seeks this guy out twice. This man did not go looking for Jesus. This man did not go, or, well, let's be honest, he may have, and the Bible just doesn't tell us. But what, we're, what we can read here is that Jesus sought him out on both occasions. He seeks him out, and he finds him in the temple, and he says unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Now, many commentators say, if, 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 you, if you read several of them, this is kind of what I was finding, is that when Jesus says, sin no more lest something worse comes upon you, Jesus is implying that, number one, he knows the man, he knows the reason why the man was sick. And number two, it's implied that some kind of sin brought an illness into this man's life. But again, if we fast forward to chapter 9, we know that Jesus says, not every sickness is brought upon by, by sin, right? But this case it, it's, it, appears, it appears that this man had done something, and that is his condition. And, of course, we don't have to go down too far about how sin brings its own punishment, right? God doesn't, Brother Mooney said this so great a, uh, a while ago, I think, now on a Sunday morning, that when we sin, God doesn't have to literally punish us because sin brings its own punishment. So that, of course, could be something Jesus is referencing to. Unfortunately, signs and wonders do nothing for hearts that are not open. Jesus can pull you out of a situation and Jesus can change your life. Jesus could even do a miracle, something that you have never seen in your entire life, but you could go right back to the situation you were at before. I think we've all heard and seen situations where people come to church and God does the miraculous and then unfortunately we never see them again. The man, verse 15, departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. Now, we don't know the exact intention of this man's heart. We don't know if he was doing, you know, the tattletale kind of thing. 
or if he was trying to give credit where credit is due or, or whatever. We, we don't know the reason why this man went to the Pharisees and told them it was Jesus. Maybe John is just trying to kind of point out the, the reaction of the Jews here. But what is clear, this man says, it was Jesus. It wasn't the water. It wasn't some person that helped me along, but it was, in fact, Jesus. And that should be our response. We should be quick to give God praise, and we should be quick to give God thanks for the things that he has done in our lives. Just quick, um, my, my former pastor there in Minnesota, Brother uh, Jeremy Cox, he was at this kind of like a pastor's get-together thing in Mankato there, and it, there were several different denominations there. And uh, he was talking to a couple guys. One of the pastors had just gotten back from uh, vacation to Florida, and I, I, the situation revolves around him having a very serious uh, medical condition, like kind of hit the spot. I think it was, a, it, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head if it was a heart attack or if it was something, but it, he was only like a minute or two away from one of the best heart hospitals like in the state. And he's telling everybody this at that meeting, and they're all like, oh, wow, that's awesome. And what, we, what would we do when we hear great testimonies like Brother Lopez shared and, and healings or other things like that? What do we say? Oh, amen, thank God. This guy, this is what this, is what this denominal pastor said. Now, I, I know a lot of us are uncomfortable with the word miracle, but let's just say I'm very grateful. And he would not give God glory that basically his, I mean, he's literally just a minute or two away from being dead, and the best medical help that he could get was just a few blocks away. So we, if we're going to impact this world, again, we have to be bold enough to say, let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Amen. Verse 16. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Does anybody remember in the Gospels how many times the Pharisees go to Jesus and ask him for a sign? Just do something and we'll believe. Every time I read that, I think, well, what kind of sign do you want? Because he does miracles like everywhere. He does all, just all kinds of stuff. What, what are you looking for when you say you want a sign? Because he's doing them time and time again. But they seek to slay him, it says. Now, in the Jewish mind here, in the Jewish tradition, there are 39 categories. that. So we've got the Law of Moses and then we have the Jewish tradition. In this tradition, not the law of Moses, they have 39 categories that they say, you cannot do these things on the Sabbath, otherwise you'll be breaking the law. For instance, let me, let me tell you about how goofy some of these sound to us. They would say it is illegal to spit on the Sabbath, because if you spit, it will go in the dust, and it will create some kind of, you know, like, indenture or whatever, and that's the equivalent of plowing. Okay, no planting on the Sabbath day, okay? So they said, careful, no spitting because that's, that's planting and harvesting and all that kind of stuff. The 39th category said this, you are forbidden to carry one load from one dwelling place to another dwelling place. And that's what this man was doing. He was leaving his dwelling place of this area. Hope I don't know where he was going, wherever his new home was going to be. But he's carrying 
a load from one area to the other, and this makes them very, very upset. And Jesus' response is this, but Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. But this is the Sabbath day. Jesus says, my father works, and I do as well. But didn't, didn't God rest on the Sabbath? Genesis 1, didn't God rest on the very last day of creation? In the Jewish mind, they thought that the Sabbath was like God created and then he was in this continual Sabbath, like this continual type of rest. And there's a couple different other opinions on this, but I'll just share this one with you that I thought was, was interesting here. Because what we could say Jesus, this is, this is maybe the idea that Jesus is trying to, to show them. He says, yes, God did rest on the Sabbath, but the trees are still growing. The water is still flowing. The, the flowers are still blossoming. Guess what? The sun is still rising. He says, my father is still working, and so am I. So we could say it like this. Although God did rest on the Sabbath, he ceased to create, but he did not cease to govern. He did not cease to be God in command over all of nature. He did not cease to be the almighty, the wonderful, and the most powerful, but he did cease creating. And then we look at what, what Jesus says in two Gospels. He says both in, in the book of Mark and the book of Luke, he asks them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do evil on the Sabbath? Is it lawful, lawful to kill or to make life? What, what is, is, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And it says that they did not answer him. In Luke 14, he asks them, if you guys, you Pharisees, if you had an animal fall into a pit, wouldn't you get it out if it was on the Sabbath? And again, none of them answered. Why? Because they all knew I'm getting my donkey out, right? They all knew I'm not leaving it in the pit. So what this comes down to in my mind is the heart of the issue, the heart of the command. Jesus points to the heart of commands in numerous places. Okay, he says that you know, according to the law of Moses, that murder is wrong. But he says it's not just murder that is wrong. The heart of this commandment is you should not be hateful and you should not be angry with your brother and your sister because that is the root of murder. So to me, when we look at this, I think Jesus, again, is trying to point to some heart issues. Because, I mean, honestly, why would he make this command about the Sabbath? Why is this Sabbath thing such a big deal? And, and I don't know the, the complete answer. You know, we could dig a little bit and expound some things, and probably, you know, Brother Kilman was here and Sister Mast, we could get to the, to the main issue here. But, what, but in my mind, what this comes to is the Sabbath was a complete dependence on God. There are laws and, and instructions in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8, for example, that says I'm, God's going to give the Israelites a bunch of stuff. But the, as soon as they start thinking that it was their own works and their own uh, talent and work that got them all of these blessings, God says, I'm going to take them away. And so this, to me, is one of those covenant relationship things that says, I'm going to stop working because all of this work is a blessing unto me, and I'm going to give glory to God because he gave it to me. So that is just one little part of what I think Jesus is talking about here. Because realistically, is carrying a sleeping bag work? 
To the Jew, if they say you can't spit, then obviously yes. But to the heart of the issue, this man is not trying to say, hey, I, I'm pretty awesome because I have this mat, mat here, right? So again, the heart of the issue, God is, Jesus is not trying to say that the Sabbath is wrong or not respecting the Sabbath is, he's not saying that's wrong to do that. But what is the heart of the issue here? And then the last verse here, verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath. Now Jesus was not carrying anything, but remember he worked because he healed someone. He did good on the Sabbath. Therefore, in their mind, he broke the Sabbath. They're mad at him because he broke the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. In the Old Testament, we see several situations where God would put up an individual and say, you're going to be my representative. And you, for let's use Moses as kind of the classic example. God says to Moses, you will be a God unto Pharaoh. The Jews had no problem with this because it was God setting up an individual. But why they got mad at Jesus is because his situation is just a little bit different. Jesus himself says, He's my father. He's making a claim of deity. And as one Trinitarian commentator puts it, I like the way he puts it, he says, this is different with Jesus because he was God. So he can actually claim this type of stuff because it's actually true. Another commentator, well, let me say this first. You as a man are claiming to be God. This is a, a deity statement. Now, if you, if you uh, listen to atheists and all that kind of stuff, Brother Jaden, Brother Chris, something that they will point to very often is they will say something like this. Jesus in the Gospels himself never said, quote, I am God. And then they will further that, but these, these critics of the Bible, and they would say something like this. The worship of Jesus as God did not come until much later. Another reason why the Gospel of John is not reliable, supposedly, right? So they would, they would make these statements that the term, I am God, therefore Jesus never claimed to be God. That's, that's their idea. The problem is, is that they're trying to inject their 21st century mind back into a 2,000-year-old uh, religious mindset that's not even anywhere near the United States. Now, why do I bring that up? Because Jesus doesn't have to say, I am God, to make a deity claim. There, when he says, I am that I, or when he says, I am, that's a deity statement, he's claiming to be God. When he says, I am the Son of God, he's claiming to be God in the flesh. When he forgives sin and when he accepts worship and all of these things, all of these things point to him being God. So an atheist really does not know the good. Um, Jewish mindset here because he doesn't have to say I am God in order to make that type of claim another uh, Trinitarian that I really enjoy uh, Albert Barnes wrote Barnes notes he says this the Jews are the best interpreters of their own language he said they rightly understood what Jesus was saying he says they understood that Jesus is saying I'm God he's not some member of the Trinity they understood that. This is not a Trinitarian claim because in the Jewish mind, there is only one God. Claiming to be God, you are claiming to be the God. There is no this God over here and this God over here. 
Okay, this is why they are so upset because he claimed to be equal with God. He was claiming to be God himself. And so let me tell you who Jesus is. He is the rock of all ages. He is the alpha and the omega as the song goes. He's the beginning and the end. He is the heavenly father. And we can't be afraid of what somebody might attack us with. We can't be afraid to stand up and to proclaim, let me know or let me tell you who Jesus is. I'm almost done. I'm on my last page of notes here. So the identity of Jesus can solve anything. Knowing truly who Jesus is can solve any situation in our life. Unfortunately, people are still messing with who Jesus is today. And I always seem to kind of get, I love apologetics, defense of the Bible. I always seem just, and I wasn't even looking for this, to be honest with you, what I'm going to share with you. I found this and I thought, this is so interesting. Uh, There is Bethesda, but right on top of Bethesda there, there was an ancient Roman temple built to a Greek hero named Asclepius. Now, Asclepius was the son of a god Apollo, whom you might have heard of. And this Asclepius became the, the, the god of medicine and healing. So I'm reading these things on a couple, a couple places I was looking at. And a ton of atheists were just so mad at Christianity. Because Christians just, they, they took that, that temple of Asclepius and they made this story of the pool of Bethesda healing. They said that, that, pool, that Jesus being the healer at Bethesda, all that is is a copycat tale they stole from the Asclepius cult in that temple. Because it's the same area, the temples are right on top of each other, they're right there, and they're so hateful and they're trying to mess with the identity of Jesus that he's not a healer, you Christians stole this idea. The problem is, is that when you start looking at it, you realize that the temple of Asclepius was built 200 years after Jesus. So I don't think that the Christians stole this story and created Asclepius into some Bethesda Jesus story. So again, the identity of Jesus, people are trying to tear him down at any, every single turn that we can, we can see here. And even Roman emperors were known for building pagan temples and and tearing down Christian monuments and all this kind of stuff. So pretty interesting. But I'm going to close here if the music could come. The identity of Jesus can change everything. If we see Jesus as just a mere man, even in the midst of miracles and in the midst of God changing our life, if we just see him as just some guy that walked into our life and then just walked out, even though maybe he was searching for us in the temple and looking for us, and maybe even he messed with our theology a little bit. How are we going to respond to this Jesus? As the man, the man that was healed, Jesus revealed himself. So if we put ourselves in that man's place, will we obey what he says, and will we proclaim him? As a Pharisee, Jesus was messing with our traditions and messing with our mentality a little bit. If Jesus messes with our minds and our ideas, are we going to think second about Jesus or are we going to think second about our religion? Charles de Gaulle and Winston Churchill are two very famous individuals. Both of them, one from France, one from England, stood up against the Nazis and tried to get their countries 
to fight against the Nazis and fight against the evil and, and the, hor- the horrific things that the Nazis were doing. In some cases, they stood very alone when they did this. And if you go over to France, there are statues in that massive airport in, in Paris is named after Charles de Gaulle. And then you go over to England and, and you know, this is, this is the man, Churchill. I lo- there's so many great stories about him, but I, I love the one when they finally win the war. He's going through the streets and he's yelling at the people, this is your victory. And they yell back at him, no, this is your victory because you're the one that stood up and you're the one that we could rally behind. If you go into the parliament building there at Westminster, there is a massive statue of Churchill right before the main door that goes into the the House of Commons. Remember Churchill. Remember what he stood for and remember what he did. And this was in my mind again going through this lesson is that memorials are not built for those that surrender. Memorials are not built for the person that when we get attacked, are we gonna throw in the towel? Memorials are not going to be built. We are not going to grow and we will not impact our world if that hardship comes for 38 years and God tries to touch our life and we just take a step back. Amen. If we could all stand.